Y'all glad to be in church tonight? All right, take your Bible and turn to Mark 14. I like those words, that's my God and I love Him. I hope we can say that in public as well as we can in this building right here. The world needs to know that we love Him, not just that we give lip service to Him. Amen. Mark chapter 14, if you can, I'd appreciate it if you'd stand as we honor the reading of the Word of God. Mark chapter 14 tonight. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. I appreciate the Beermans and um, whether we will admit it or not, we have favorite missionaries. Mark Lawrence is one of my favorites and I love him dearly. And uh, his, his daughter is a member of our church and uh, I'm, I'm connected to that work in a way that uh, is, I'm thankful. And so we certainly want to be praying for them and I know Brother Mark's anxious for them to get there. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. The Bible says, In the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? And he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the goodman of the house, The master saith, Where is the gas chamber, where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And his disciples went forth and came into the city, and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover." Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you'll take this time and use it for your glory. I thank you for what we've already enjoyed. Lord, I am extremely aware of my great need. Father, that if the Holy Ghost doesn't show up and do the work here, it's all in vain. And so I yield myself to thee, and in the name of the Lord Jesus, through his atoning death and his blood, and by your mercy, I pray that you'll use this vessel for your glory, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You be seated. I hope you, like me, have had the experience every now and then, and hold on to your place there. It'll be a little while before we get to the text. It'll be a good while, probably. Every now and then you're reading a passage, even though you've read it many times and something just jumps out of that passage and hits you right in the face. You ever had that experience? I hope you have. Uh, You ever wonder why God gives you certain information? Uh, There's a place over there in uh, John where the Bible tells you that they caught a great number of fish, 153. I'm like, why why do I need to know that? What, 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 does it matter if it's 153 or 142 or, of course it could just, you know, it it, it is that if you like fishing, you probably like that number. You, most fishermen are exaggerators and I don't know why I felt compelled to say that. That's, golfers are too. Americans are too. Uh, Why does it matter that Zacchaeus climbed a sycamore tree? Why, Why does it have, why do we even need to know that? Now, I believe we have the Word of God, don't you? But you ever wonder why you're given certain details there in John 2? The Bible says there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee on the third day. It tells you specifically it was on the third day. Uh, you got a place over there in John where, where the Lord shows up and they're in the boat fishing and the Bible tells you that Peter jumps in the water because he was naked. Now, I've never got a real thrill out of that passage. I've never got any great insight on what was going on there. I've never preached on Peter being naked. But that's what the Bible says, is it not? Now I have some thoughts on the passage, but I'll save those for another time. So you're reading through the Bible and you get this information and you really don't even know what to do with it. But sometimes, obviously, God had a reason for it. Some, some of us read through Chronicles and wonder why the whole book's even there. You, you're, you're sort of looking pious, but I know you feel that way sometimes when you're trying to work your way through the Bible and you're wondering what that information is there for. So, uh, I, I'm a, I love to study words. Probably what I do more of in my preparation for preaching is the study of individual words. And I love to study etymology, where that word came from. And I love to study it, and I get criticized. I'm a King James Bible believer, okay? I believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. It is, it was, and it always will be, okay? But nonetheless, I like studying different languages. I want to know where... A lot of our English language came from Latin. 
And I can tell you right now, if you understood Latin, you'd understand this Bible a little bit better. By the way, if you understood Hebrew, you'd understand a little bit better. This is a Jewish book. So don't, don't rob yourself. God chose to, to communicate through words. So I like to study words, and not too long ago I got to studying a word, the word providence. You know, we talk about the providence of God. It's often called divine providence. I want to talk for just a moment about that word before we get to our text. Uh, the danger of the message I'm going to preach, I'm going to tell you the title of the message tonight. I don't always do that, but the title of the message tonight is Not a Chance. Not a chance. And the word chance is in quotes. So bear with me. Uh, the problem with this message is that um, a lot of people dwell on God's sovereignty to the exclusion of the free will of man. Now we're in a world today that is being, it is unbelievable how Calvinism is sweeping the land. So every chance I get, I bash it. You have a free will. You're here right now because you chose to be here. All right, And if you're saved, it's because you chose to trust Jesus Christ. You received Him. And uh, you have a free will. The truth of the matter is the word sovereignty is not a Bible word. I believe in the sovereignty of God. But Calvinism emphasizes the sovereignty of God to the exclusion of the free will of man. I believe in both. I believe God is God and man is man. And so the danger in preaching this message tonight is you could easily get tangled up in those things if you allow yourself, but I'm warning you up front so that you won't do that. Now, the word providence is a great word. If you study the word, the first seven letters are the the key, P-R-O-V-I-D-E, provide. Providence has to do with providing. The word pro, as you well know, means before or in front of, and the word vide is where we get the word video or visual, not audio, but video. So a provider is someone that sees something beforehand and makes preparation. That makes sense to you? That's what a provider does. He sees beforehand and makes preparation. And the idea is that God, with His foresight, sees ahead and meets needs before they arise. Amen. That's what God does. Isn't it the Father's job to provide? Y'all still Americans? Don't you still believe the man is to be the provider for the most part? And we're supposed to make sure our wives and children are taken care of? A father is supposed to... By the way, if you want to be a good provider, the need's met before the bill shows up. God's a great provider. He looks ahead and prepares and meets the need before it arises. If you want to be a good provider, don't wait till the bill shows up to go looking for a job. Amen. Everybody getting that? That's not the message tonight, but it might help somebody. You look ahead and you think ahead because you're supposed to be the provider. It's to see in front of or before and prepare. And so the providence of God has to do with provision, but it's a lot deeper than that. The Bible says in Romans 8, 28, and you're familiar with this passage, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. By the way, let me just tell you this. When the Bible talks about in Romans 8, that's 8, 28, the called according to His purpose in Romans 6, the called is everybody that's saved. I just want to throw this out there to you tonight. This is not in the message really, but uh, if you're saved, you've been called. Every one of you. 2 Peter 1 says you've been called to glory and to virtue. Uh, Don't wait on a call to do something for God. You've already been called if you're saved. Now, yes, God may call someone specifically to Germany. That may happen, but but God's called every one of you. When the Bible talks about we know all things work together for good, them that are love God and them that are called according to His purpose, it's talking about those that are saved. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 that God worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. Now, I could, get, I could get tangled up here if I'm not careful. I don't want to get off on... Uh, I would love to preach tonight. I preach at my church about once a year on what the Bible really does mean when it talks about election and predestination. Listen, if you're saved, it's because you chose Jesus Christ. Let me tell you who the number one primary elect is in the Bible. Jesus. Jesus is the elect. And, and what God and the Holy Spirit... And Jesus did before the foundation of the world. They had a meeting and, and talked to themselves. You ever talk to yourself? God talked to Himself. 
Several times in the Bible. And they had a meeting and said, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to make this man and he's going to sin. He's going to mess this thing up and the image is going to be tarnished and I'm going to have to have somebody go down there and fix the problem so I'll do an atonement and I'll let him kill a lamb. And Jesus speaks up and says, but you know, God, you want him to, Father, you want him to live forever so you need an eternal atonement. So when I go down, I'll have eternal blood and I'll offer eternal blood and then they can have eternal atonement and be forgiven eternally. And the three got together before the world ever began and they decided, that Jesus was going to be the elect. So when you read about predestination before the foundation of the world, what God decided before the foundation of the world is that Jesus was going to be His elect and that if you, by your own free will, choose to receive Jesus Christ, then God was going to put you in His Son and you were going to end up like Jesus Christ. Predestination means that you're going to end up like Jesus Christ if you're saved. But you get to choose if you're saved or not. Okay, everybody got that? So God has a plan for you if you're the called, you're the saved. God wants to do something in your life, with your life. Now, we're talking about the providence of God. There's a worldview today, prevalent worldview, a modern mindset, if you will. Uh, It's a pagan, it's a cultural view, and I think it has influenced the church. And it's basically the idea that God is just a spectator with no control and no influence. It's the concept that nature operates according to fixed laws and maybe even worse than that, that everything just happens by chance. My response to that is, not a chance. Not a chance. And and maybe you think like that more than you realize. So bear with me tonight. Americans used to know better than that. I'm a, I'm a history buff of sorts. My major was history, and I love World War II history. I, Brother Travis comes down here, he's a Civil War buff. I'm fine with that, but I like to read about men that, that's still alive. <laughs> we had a 94-year-old World War II veteran in our church not too long ago, and he was, he was in the USS Indianapolis when it was torpedoed by the Japanese and went down and was in the ocean for five days and live to tell about it. It's a great story. I love meeting those World War II vets, and there's not many of them left. But but if you read World War II men's diaries and the Civil War, we have diaries and letters handwritten by men in the Civil War, and over and over again, you'll read them writing back home to their wife, and they'd say, my life is in the hands of a good God. They believed that. It's like Cromwell who said, uh, trust God and keep your powder dry. What did he mean? He he means you've got a responsibility, but ultimately don't forget the providence of God. You have a job to do, but don't forget that God's involved. How does our Declaration of Independence close? Listen to it. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. Well, that's beautiful, isn't it? They want to claim that our forefathers didn't have a faith in God and all this stuff. we got the proof. It says, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. What they said is, we're going to give ourselves to each other, but we're going to trust the hand of God on our lives. It's that combination of faith and responsibility. But they did not believe in chance. I don't believe in luck. You will know I'm having a bad day or a weak day or a, a, I'm just not thinking right if I ever say to you, good luck. I hate that term. I really do. I despise it. I loathe it. I don't even believe in it. In Proverbs 16.33, the Bible says, the lot, talking about casting lots, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. The Lord doesn't roll dice. He controls dice. I believe that. I really do. Don't ever say, don't ever say, wish me luck. Why don't you say, pray for me? Wish me luck? Or, whatever will be, will be. Wrong! That's not true. Whatever will be, might not be. It might depend on you. Why don't you just leave all your doors unlocked tonight and say, well, whatever will be, will be. You're going to lock your doors, most of you. Amen. 
uh, this, this mentality, well, I had a man in my church, he said it a lot. He'd say, well, it's, it's just in the cards. No, it's not. It's, it's, ultimately, it's in the hand of God. But things, do you believe that your prayer has an influence on what God does? So tomorrow might be twisted or tweaked based on your prayer life. God might change His mind when you pray. Moses prayed and God repented. Amen. I'm saying to you, the providence of God is more important than most of us stop to think about. Uh, we, we believe that God is in control. But I'm afraid that we believe it theoretically. I'm afraid that we believe it intellectually and not practically. I preached a series of sermons in my church not too long ago on practical faith. I call it faith with boots on. Where faith is supposed to take action, faith is supposed to go to work, and that if we really have faith, it will affect what we do. Faith affects what I do when I get up tomorrow. We believe in the free will of men and the free will that I have. I believe in it, but I also believe that God is involved in working behind the scenes. And sometimes He's working behind the scenes to accomplish His will, and we don't see His hand. Pilate chose to crucify Jesus Christ. You tell me, could He have chosen not to? Yes, He could have chosen not to. He could have said, I find no fault in this man. He goes free. But he chose the opposite because the influence of men is still the influence of God. You make choices every day based on the influence of those around you or the influence of the Holy Spirit or the influence of the Bible. You have to make the ultimate choice. And at the same time, your choice will affect God. Jesus said to Pilate, don't you know that I have the power, or Pilate said to Jesus, don't you know that I have the power to crucify or release you? And Jesus said, you have no power at all except to be given from thee from above. You've got some power, but ultimately it came from God. You have authority, but God's in control. I like what E.V. Hill said preaching his wife's funeral. He said, if the devil's gonna have to, if the devil's gonna mess with me, he's gotta have my father's permission. I believe that. I believe it strongly. You remember the book of Esther? Not one mention of God. God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther, but it's easy to see the hand of God throughout the entire book, isn't it? It's obvious that God is at work even though His name is not mentioned. Do you and I really believe in the providence of God? Colossians 1.17 says, And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Your global warming's not going to kill us. No, God says the seasons are going to last until He burns them up. He's going to burn this earth up one of these days. But the Bible says He is before all things and by Him all things consist. Hebrews 1.3 says He upholds all things by the word of His power. You know what's holding this galaxy in place? God. And if I didn't believe that, I'd be scared to death to get out of the bed in the morning. I'm sure I've told you about S.M. Lockridge. They asked S.M. Lockridge one time, Shadrach Meshach Lockridge was his real name. Great black preachers. First preacher I ever heard after I got saved. And I heard him preach, and they said, he said, they asked me one time, where'd God come from? He said, God came from nowhere. And the reason he came from nowhere is because there was nowhere for him to come from. He said, coming from nowhere, God stood upon nothing. And the reason He stood upon nothing is because there was nothing for Him to stand on. And coming from nowhere and standing upon nothing, God reached out where there was nowhere to reach and He caught something where there was nothing to catch and He hung something on nothing and told it to stay there. I believe that. You know what Job says? He hangeth the earth upon nothing. That's our God. If He can do that, can He help you through Corona? Can He help you through 2020? We have galaxies and planets and worlds and suns and stars and all of this stuff in this universe all moving, all rotating and spinning and burning. If God wasn't in control, it'd all be over. I believe strongly, scripturally and philosophically, in the providence of God. Now, in light of the providence of God to our text, in Mark 14, they're in Bethany. 
And in verse 12, Jesus Christ, in, uh, he's, he's dealing with His disciples, and they initiate the conversation. He's not the one that brought this conversation up. They said to Him, uh, where, where are we going to go and prepare? In verse 13, He said, go into the city, talking about Jerusalem. That's about two miles walking. Don't you think about this. Go into the city... And there'll be a man there. At the time you get there, there's going to be a man there and he's going to be walking around with a picture on his head. That's the way they... Usually it was the woman. It's very possible that the reason they're going to recognize this fella quickly is because he's the only man doing it. But whatever the case may be, they've got to... They brought the conversation up at the time they brought it up. Now they've got to walk two miles and when they get there, there's going to be a man there walking around with a picture of water. I guess that'd be easy enough to spot... And then they say, follow that man in verse... Jesus tells them in verse 14, follow that man to a house. Then talk to the good man of the house. He's the owner, the master, if you will. He's going to show you an upper room and everything will be ready. Now is that chance or the providence of God? Do y'all really believe this story when you read it? I really believe this story. Don't we serve the same God? Is He not the same yesterday, today, and forever? Listen, when I walked in the First Baptist Church, Carthage, in 1988 as a 28-year-old preacher, I had no idea what God was doing. I didn't want to go there. I told God I didn't want to go there. I tried everywhere in the world to get that church to not even consider me. I didn't even want to go preach. And finally I consented and they said, give us one sermon. I said, no, I'll preach a revival. I met with the deacons and I met with all the church and they asked me questions and I insulted them. I did not want to go there. And when they voted, the vote was 142 to 2 in favor of calling me as pastor. I said, God, what are you doing? That's honestly, I fell on my face. I fasted for three days. I said, Lord, I don't want to go down there. Is this what you want me to do? God made it abundantly clear that's what He wanted me to do. I went there my first Sunday. I walked out the door and a little old lady grabbed me by the hand and she said, Brother Ron, I've been praying for you for 20 years. And I've told you this story before, but after two or three times of repeating that, She said, Brother Ron, I've been asking God to send me a King James Bible-believing pastor for 20 years. And the reason there's a Cornerstone Baptist Church right now in Carthage, Tennessee, that God is using in spite of me, and I mean that with all my heart, is because of a little old lady that knew how to get prayers through. And the providence of God brought her prayers and my path together. And worked out a situation where there could be a Bible-believing work in Smith County. That was the hand of God. There's not one doubt in my mind. I moved there in 1988. Brother Bob Johnson, a retired lieutenant colonel from the Air Force, moved there the same year, 1988. I was in that church and he told his wife, as they moved there, we're going to visit every church in the county before we join a church. We're going to visit all the Baptist churches before we join. The first Sunday they walked into our church, I gave the invitation. He walked down the aisle and said, we want to join this church. His wife told me later, she said, he reached and grabbed my hand and about drug me down there. He told me we weren't going to do that until we visited. At the same time I moved to that county, he moved to that county, and he was our treasure for over 20 years. Is that chance? Just chance? Just happened? Or was God doing something? Listen to me, missionaries. You're going to go to some strange places. Some places you don't know a whole lot about and won't know a whole lot of people. But I promise you, you're going to meet your man with a picture on his head. I promise you when you get there, you're going to meet the good man of the house. You're going to find your upper room and God is going to go before you and He's going to work things out after His will and He's going to prepare and He's going to move. Thank God for the providence of God. I'd hate to try to serve God without it. Maybe you've heard this story. On the front porch, this is a story that I researched to make sure it was legitimate. On the front porch of this little country store in Illinois, a business owner and Barry, B-E-R-R-Y, his partner, stood, uh, stood on the porch. Business was all gone. They were about to go under. Barry asked his partner, how much longer can we keep this going? And the owner said, it looks as if our business is about winked out. You know, I wouldn't mind it so much if I could just do what I want to do. I want to study law. 
I wouldn't mind it so much if we could just sell everything we've got, pay all of our bills, and just have enough money left over to buy one book, Blackstone's Commentary on English Law. But that'll never happen. Shortly after that, a strange-looking wagon came up the road. The driver angled it up close to the store porch, looked at the owner and said, I'm trying to move my family out west and I'm out of money. I've got a good barrel here that I could sell for 50 cents. The owner's eyes went and looked around the wagon and came to the wife up on the, top, up on the wagon seat. The wife was looking at him pleadingly. Her face was thin and emaciated. And he ran his hand into his pocket and took out, according to him, the last 50 cents I had and said, I reckon I could use a good barrel. All day long, the barrel sat on the porch of that store. Barry kept chiding his partner to do something about it. And late in the evening, the owner walked out and looked into the barrel. He saw something in the bottom of it, papers that he hadn't noticed before. His long arms went down into the barrel, and as he fumbled around, he hit something solid. He pulled out a book and stood petrified. It was Blackstone's commentary on English law. And, of course, the man was Abraham Lincoln. Chance? Chance? Turn to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Verse 1, Matthew chapter 21. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethpage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied, and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. Now is that just God able to see everything at one place, and then report to Jesus, and Jesus said, Hey, I just got a word from the Father. Or is that the providence of God working behind the scenes? Look down at verse 6. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. How much more of the hand of God would we see if we'd do what they did? They went and did as Jesus commanded them. And then they got there and saw, wow, he's right. Right? Have you ever been, you ever just sort of felt that nudge? That tug that prick and didn't yield to it? And you wonder why you don't see the hand of God? How many times has God nudged you and you didn't respond? Urged you and you didn't respond? Turn to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. I love this story. (laughs) You know, the skeptics, the scoffers make fun of us and then they believe in global warming. They they believe in evolution. Now you stop and think about that. I'm not going to be intimidated because somebody makes fun of me for believing that Jonah was swallowed by a whale when they believe if I keep using deodorant, I'm going to destroy the environment. Who's laughing at who? They don't intimidate me. I do believe this book. I literally, I sat in a seminary classroom listening to scholars with more degrees than a thermometer tell me that it wasn't true and I still believe it. I believe what I'm about to read to you. Matthew chapter 17, verse uh, 24. Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. And when they were come to Capernaum, uh, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He said, uh, saith, Yes. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute, of their own children or of strangers? Peter said unto him, Of strangers. Jesus said unto him, uh, Then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his, opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. Do you believe what you just read? How, how would you like to read Peter? Peter, don't you go down there and fish. When you get that fish, look in his mouth and you'll find some money. <laughs> that had to be an odd command. Do y'all believe that really happened? Did God put that coin in the fish's mouth? Why didn't he just put it in Peter's hand? Couldn't he have put He could have put it in Peter's pocket. He could have put it in, Pe- he could have put it in Peter's mouth. It was big enough. 
fish attracted to shiny objects? I read a story of a fisherman one time. I, again, researched this. It's a newspaper article. Our favorite story about a sparkly mouth fish was widely reported by online and in the print in 2008. It involves Joe Richardson of Buna, y'all may know where that's at, Texas, who while fishing on Lake Sam Rayburn in 1987 lost an engraved blue stone class ring that his mother had purchased for him. His mom was not happy about it at all, but when a search failed to find the $200 ring, the family figured they'd never see it again. And 21 years passed by, the ring was forgotten. The day after Thanksgiving, 2008, an angler hooked a whopping 8-pound largemouth bass while fishing at Lake Rayburn. And when he lifted the fish into his boat, out popped a ring. Richardson's name was etched inside the band, allowing the angler who asked to remain anonymous to track him down after the internet search. Several calls were made. He said, my first reaction was, you've got to be kidding, Richardson said, but he was not. It was true. Now, if that can happen, what can God do? <laughs> do what you want to with that. I've got a missionary friend. I love him to death. He's not able to go to the field anymore. He was on a very difficult field for over 30 years. He told me one time that he went into a church. He said, I need... And the money that he told me about it, and I don't know how many people he told this to, but this is the kind of man you just don't argue with. He, this is the kind of man I would, I, would, I would accuse myself of embellishing before I would him. He's that kind of man, a man of great integrity. And he needed a certain amount of money. He didn't have any money. It was like, it's an automatic, like $347.21. And he said he went to this church and he presented the work or gave them a report. And he said they didn't give him anything. He was shocked. He said he was leaving dejected and walked into the restroom. And he said, as I walked out of the restroom, a man handed me an envelope. And he walked into the restroom and I walked out. He said, Brother Ron, when I, when I opened that envelope, there was $347.21 in it. And he said, I, I, he said, I didn't know what to do. He said, so I went into the restroom. To, and he said, I've been standing right outside. He said, there was nobody in the restroom. I said, I don't believe that. Well, we had Darlene Rose in our church one time. Does anybody remember Darlene Rose? I know y'all bound to know of Darlene Rose. We, I, 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 I generally don't give a lady my pulpit. But Darlene Rose has a testimony that's out of this world. And she came to our church and I said, Miss Darlene, I just want you to stand up and I want you to just... Give your testimony of what God's done in your life. That's all I want you to do. I forget how old she was at the time. She was getting on up in years, and she stood in our pulpit for like an hour and 20 minutes, told her story, and she told about the night. And I may tell this a little wrong. Some of you guys can correct me later. But she was in New Guinea, and, and her husband had died. Her and another lady were in a cabin, and, and a tribe came. Uh, some, some tribesmen came and, and scared them to death. They thought they were going to kill them. And they just hunkered down and began to pray. And sometime later, those people left. And it was sometime after that, she met the chief of that tribe and asked them, weren't, it, weren't you at my house on such a... She said, they said, yeah. She said, what happened? And he said, well, we were wondering who those men were dressed in white surrounding your cabin. Now, when Darlene Rose tells that story, I believe it. And when I tell these Bible stories, you believe them. But you know what happens to you and me? We listen to CNN and Fox and forget the providence of God. I'm just being honest with you. We get caught up in, the, in this world of pandemic and fear tactics and, and it may get bad. It may get real bad. But I'm not going to live the rest of my life in fear when I've got a God that can put a coin in a fish's mouth, that can put angels around a cabin... I'm not going to hunker down and live the rest of my life in fear. I'm going to live by the grace of God, by the faith of God, and the providence of God. Isn't that your desire? We serve a God who can bring water from a rock. He can drop bread from heaven. He can part the Red Sea. He can open up the earth and swallow men. He can cause the blind to see, or He can cause your enemy to go blind. He can put a coin in a fish's mouth. He can turn a pot of oil into an oil business. Our God can put, He can put a Boaz in the path of a Ruth. He can put, He can put a Gomer in the path of Hosea. Those were not chance romances. Those were the hand of God in their lives. It didn't just happen to happen. I tell my young people all the time, if you'll obey God, He'll put Mr. Right and Miss Right in your path. 
He'll direct your path. Isn't that what the Bible says? We quote it all the time, but we sometimes forget it. We serve a God who counts the stars and gives every one of them a name. He knows the exact number of hairs on your head. He can take the heart of a king and turn it whithersoever He will. He can take a cold heart and melt it. God uses ants and angels and worms and worlds and lilies and lords and ravens and rulers and donkeys and doctors and He wants to use you. He might use a donkey. He might use a drought. He might use a jawbone. He might use a lantern. He might use a king. He might use a beggar. He might use a widow. He might use a little boy. But whatever he chooses to use, God is always at work behind the scenes and he's never once been taken by surprise. How many stories could we read of the providence of God in the Bible? You're reading over there in Genesis 22. It's the first time you find the word provide in the Bible. It's in Genesis 22 where God says to Abraham, God will provide what? Himself. And just at the time that the angel, Abraham's about to kill his son, the angel says, don't do it. And right at that time, a ram just happens to be caught in a thicket. Boy, was Abraham lucky. No! That's not luck. What about the entire story of Joseph? Take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Let me show you a great verse in the Bible. Acts chapter 7. You remember when his brothers left him there in the pit? Remember when they sold him into slavery? Remember when he was cast into the prison? Remember when the butler got out and forgot Joseph? You remember the story. At what point do you reckon Joseph began to thank God? This wasn't in my dream. Y'all remember the dream? That stuff wasn't in the dream. Joseph's dream was ruling over everybody. And his dream came true, but the whole episode wasn't in the dream. God didn't give him all the details. I can say, what would you have been saying in that prison after you've done everything right? Why hast thou forsaken me? Where are you in my darkest hour? God, you said you'd never leave me nor forsake me. Where are you? Sometimes we feel that way when it's our spouse in the hospital for 42 days. Or we just get the report from the doctor. I can imagine how many times in the life of Joseph he could have wondered where God was, but the Bible says in Acts chapter 7 verse 9, Acts chapter 7 verse 9, and the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, colon, but God was with him. I love that verse. Please hear me. It probably didn't look like it to Joseph. And... I'll guarantee you it didn't feel like it. You're in a cold prison. You're doing everything right. You tell a guy, listen, this is what happened in your dream, but please, when you get out, don't forget me. Two years go by. It doesn't feel like God's with you, but He is. Do you know looking back at this story that God was with Joseph? And I promise you one of these days you're going to look back on your life and see it too. I don't know about you, but I can see looking back a lot better than I can see looking forward. And I see how God worked in so many different ways in my own life. And sure enough, the butler finally gets out and after two years, one day Pharaoh has a dream and he says, you know, I had a dream. And the butler goes, I just remembered something. Providence? No. Yes. (laughs) Not luck. Wonder why, wonder why Pharaoh had that dream. Now don't go home looking for dreams tonight. Look for that nudge, that prick, that leading. The psalmist said, my times are in thy hand. You know what was going on with Joseph? It was now God's time. God has good timing. It's just not our timing. Amen. And I'm sure Joseph's thinking, it's about time. And God's thinking, no, it's the right time. Now is the time. Do you remember, you remember baby Moses 
Jochebed hid Moses for three months and then they make that little ark of bulrushes and put him out on the river and Pharaoh's daughter just happened to be taking a bath that day. And as a matter of fact, Moses' sister just happened to be there. And the crocodiles just happened to not be hungry that day. Boy, (laughs) Moses was so lucky. Not a chance. I hope you've read the story that I read years ago during the Civil War in Andersonville, Georgia. There was a prison built in 1864. And it was built to hold about 10,000 men. And at this time in August of 1864, there were 33,000 men in that prison. It was nasty and dirty. There was a stream that was supposed to provide water as it went through that prison. And it was just polluted with human waste and filth. And you can imagine what it was like. Disease was rampant. Gangrene was rampant. Some of them soldiers began to pray for God to get them some water. And not long after they began to pray, there was, a, there was literally a, a bolt of lightning hit the ground and a spring came up. And I don't know how many lives were spared, but if you want to read the story, you can look it up yourself. Just look up the word Providence Spring in Andersonville, Georgia. That's the name of it. You want to do something for God? Really do something for God? Please hear me tonight. Whether it's in the mission field or just living for Him as a godly wife or mother or husband or father or a godly teenager, I promise you God's got a lightning bolt for you. If you'll be faithful... He has a man with a picture in your life. There'll be a fish with a coin. There'll be a little boy's lunch. There'll be a little maid that knows a prophet. Like the book of Esther, God will work in behind the scenes and the king one night will eat too much pizza. (laughs) No. He'll have a dream. Don't you just love the book of Esther? Boy, Esther, wasn't she lucky? Mordecai, you talk about lucky. Poor old Haman, he wasn't very lucky. <laughs> Has nothing to do with luck, not a chance. It's the hand of God. Without giving you the outline tonight, I've shown you the truth of God's providence and the timing of God's providence. Let me just say a quick word about the trusting of God's providence. I want to read you one last story tonight. You can do what you want to with these stories. I love these kind of stories. and I do my research. There's too much junk out there that people research. Man, I am a... I, oh, I've got to be careful. Let me just say this real quick. Let me be a blessing to you. Don't waste your time on conspiracy theories. Is there a conspiracy? I'll guarantee it. But I'll guarantee you there's people that are spending hours upon hours on the Internet with all these conspiracies and can't read their Bible. You know how I know that? Because i got some of them in my church. And you know what I tell them? Why are you wasting your time? Because there ain't nothing you're going to be able to do about it. Why don't you do something for God? All right, I got that out of my system. Please hear this story. On the night and early morning of August the 8th and the 9th, 1942, I told you I like World War II history, The life of 19-year-old signalman, third-class Elgin Staples is his name. Elgin Staples of Akron, Ohio, was saved by someone over 8,000 miles away. He was serving aboard the cruiser USS Astoria in support of the landings on Guadalcanal, and Staples and his crewmates suddenly found themselves illuminated by spotlight and under attack by a force of Japanese cruisers north of Savo Island. At approximately 0200 hours, the Astoria's number one eight-inch turret was hit and exploded, sweeping signalman Staples into the air and overboard. Staples was dazed and wounded in his legs by shrapnel. He kept afloat thanks to an inflatable rubber life belt that he had donned uh, shortly before the explosion. At approximately 0600 hours, Staples along with other survivors were rescued by the destroyer USS Bagley and returned to assist the Astoria which was heavily damaged but attempting to beach itself in the shallow waters off Guadalcanal. These efforts failed as Astoria took on a dangerous list before finally sinking at an approximately 12 
2,500 hours putting staples back into the water. So this is his second time in the water. He's still wearing the same life belt. He's rescued a second time by the transport USS President Jackson, and Staples was the first one to be evacuated uh, in the New Caledonia, I think I'm reading that right, before being given leave to return home. It was while on board the President Jackson that Staples first examined the life belt, which had saved him closely, uh, which had saved him, and he was observing it closely and was surprised to find out that it was manufactured in his hometown of Akron, Ohio, by the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company. He also noticed an unusual set of numbers stamped on the belt, and returning home to Akron, Staples thought to bring along the life belt that had saved him and show his family. After a quite very emotional welcome, he sat down, and now he's quoting, I sat down with my mother in our kitchen telling her about my recent ordeal and hearing what had happened at home since I had gone away. My mother informed me that to do her part, she had gotten a wartime job at the Firestone plant. Surprised, I jumped up, grabbed my belt, and got it from my duffel bag and, and put it on the table in front of her and said, Take a look at that, Mom. It was made right here in Akron at your plant. She leaned forward and taking the rubber belt in her hand, she read the label. She had just heard the story and knew that in the darkness of that terrible night, it was that one piece of rubber that had saved his life. When she looked at me, her mouth and her eyes were wide open with surprise. Son, I'm an inspector at Firestone. This is my inspector's number. Ah, just a chance, maybe. In 1977, I was a junior in high school. Lost and on my way to hell. And, uh, my dad was my dad uh, was a drunk. He ra- I, I'm the youngest of ten children, and my dad died when I was eight. When I was five or six, I was in McMinnville, Tennessee. Went to first grade at a little school called Dibral. But my mom moved to Alabama from Tennessee and stayed there until I was thirteen. When I was thirteen, I moved back to McMinnville, and when I was sixteen, seventeen, as a junior in high school, I walked into a class, had a cast on my leg. I'd had a wreck in a Jeep, and I walked up this amphitheater classroom. It was, um, I think it was, um, I forget the class, but anyway, I walked up and I sat down, and right behind me was a young lady named Rhonda Craddock. I believe had I not met her that night, I might be in hell right now. I met her, I fell in love with her immediately. You hear these you know, these little emotional stories. I'm telling you, it was love at first sight for me. I, I, I don't know what it was except God. Of course I thought she was beautiful. Of course she had a great spirit and all that. But, but I mean just immediately something happened in my heart. And a year later we were married. At 18, we both were 18. But before we got married, her sister was dating a preacher... I was lost, and my mother died. All this happened in a year's time, and I was suicidal. And uh, I was begging God to show me that he was real, and I got with her sister's boyfriend, the preacher, and for five hours I asked him questions. And at 5 a.m. on a Saturday morning, I saw the words in the Bible coming to me, all all you that labor in heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I fell on my face as an 18-year-old boy and got saved. Within a year, I was saved, called to preach, got married, started pastoring a church, went to college. And I believe it was because God planted a person right behind me in that classroom. And I'll believe that until the Lord tells me otherwise. And I've been married to her for 42 years. But what God did by putting her in my life is impossible for me to articulate. Brother Bierman said that he had been using that NIV and here's somebody that's interested in a computer that just happens to be a graduate of PBI. Somewhere around... 25, 26 years ago. I really don't know how long ago it was. Um, I went to a meeting in East Tennessee, North Georgia. Brother Roger went to a meeting. I don't know if we'd ever met. If we had, it was very briefly. And at that meeting, I got disgruntled. (laughs) Very. Brother Ed had told me, you need to meet my pastor. I met Brother Tierbach. He was at our first missions conference in 1991. 
He said, you need to meet my pastor. I went to that meeting and I just, I, it, I just won't go into all the details, but it just so happened that Brother Roger and I ended up at a restaurant eating a meal together and fellowshipping together. And some of the balance that God has used Brother Roger to bring into my life is just more than I can describe. Was that just a coincidence? There's a guy that plays guitar for Ricky Skaggs, handed Jim Britton, Travis Alltop, and Andy Lefwich a cassette tape of my preaching. Brother Jim's my assistant pastor. Brother Travis came and is now pastor, and Brother Andy's a member of our church. And God's using all three of them greatly. David Bratcher is a nephew of mine. He said, I was having a youth rally. He said, why don't you consider inviting these two guys down? They'll do a chalk drawing for you. I said, okay. I didn't even know them. Andy and Brad Price came to my church. This past Sunday, Brad Price has been my assistant pastor for 20 years. I, I have, turn to Acts 7 and I'll, I'll wrap this up. Turn to Acts 7. I just want to show you this and I'll be through. I'm telling you, I could, I've got a list here of stories that I could tell you in my personal life. I'm, I'm leaving out the end of this sermon. How many stories could be told in this room right here? Of how God worked behind the scenes to orchestrate things so that you're where you are and do it. But we forget. I'm telling you. Now listen, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I got rid of my television over 20 years ago. I, don't, I, I quit watching sports. I quit all that stuff. I'm going to tell you why. I can't handle it. It clouds my thinking. I don't need CNN or Fox to tell me how I'm supposed to feel about what's going on in this world. And they cause me to get so livid that I cannot remember that God is still in control. God is still sitting on the throne. God's hand is not heavy. His ear is not, he's, his ear is not hardened. He can still work in our lives as much as He ever could. And He is. But let's face it, we get caught up in the fear-mongering and we get caught up in the, in the conspiracies and we get caught up in the brethren. And I'm telling you tonight, church, I don't know what the future holds. I really don't. I don't know if it's going to get a lot worse after the election or a lot better. I've had a lot of people say, I don't know what's going to happen, but it ain't ever going to be the same again. And they may be right. But I'll tell you one thing that is the same and it is consistent and it's not going to change. God is still on the throne. And he's still interested in his children. And he still has a job for us to do. The Bible says in Acts chapter 7, verse 23. It's talking about Moses. And when he was a full 40 years old, here's what I want you to underline. It came into his heart. And you know what he did? He responded to it. What is that? That is the providence of God. You ever heard somebody say, my daddy was a good provider? You ever heard that? (laughs) My father is a great provider. And I promise you, he sees what's coming, and he'll take care of it. Amen. God bless you. Brother Roger, I'm going to turn it over to you tonight.